here's a riddle for you. What do late nights at the office, stress-induced headaches, and sheer bouts of frustration all have in common for transfer pricing execs? Okay, let me tell you, they're often caused by transactions involving intangibles. Hello again, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And today, we're talking about intangibles, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We know they stress you out. We also know dealing with them can seem like trying to solve the impossible, but we're going to make things easier. Mimi Song, Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist, is here, and she doesn't mess around when it comes to transfer pricing intangibles. Today, she's going to give you the lowdown on not only what they are, but how they're seen in the eyes of tax authorities around the world. For some of you, it might be back to basics. Well, back to basics with a little extra something special. And for some of you, it might just be the talk that inspires those transfer for pricing aha moments. It's okay. We've all had them. Welcome, Mimi. We'll also be joined by transfer pricing manager in our Argentinian office, Haley Mo. Of course, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this episode. Email those two words to the Fiona show, all one word, at xps.ai, and we'll reply with a CPE certificate. It's that easy. Okay, so before we get going on those intangibles, and yes, we're we're aware that's a lot of ground to cover. Let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. told you last week about how household name companies from Amazon to Netflix really aren't feeling the Pillar 1 proposals as they stand now, especially with India in the G24, pulling more towards a more equitable distribution of taxable revenues between home and market countries. But if you thought we'd be leading with a seamless solution from the OECD, sorry, no such luck. Instead, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has stepped in and rained on the parade. The U.S. does not support many of the proposals under Pillar 1, but his critics were quick to point out soon after Mnuchin's letter to the OECD announcing U.S. disapproval. Many are the same proposals Mnuchin himself advocated at the last G20 summit not so long ago. Among those once beloved proposals is the formulaic approach, a very consequential alternative to the arm's length principle and broadening the definition of determining a nexus beyond physical presence. No longer now, says Mnuchin, the U.S. doesn't like where the conversation is heading, as in shifting tax revenues more towards tech companies, key market countries like India, and less toward home countries like the U.S., and he's changing the conversation. And who cares if his argument makes any sense, right? And as if there wasn't enough drama around Pillar 1, don't forget that the OECD is making moves to reach global consensus on global minimum tax on digital services rendered by MEs, or as it's better known, Pillar 2. The purpose of agreeing on these pillars for maximum and minimum taxation is to prevent corporations from shifting profits to low-tax jurisdictions, which the OECD is still aiming to accomplish by the end of 2020. The OECD released 190 comment letters on their Pillar 2 proposal last week, and so the bickering begins. First, the sly dogs at the Business at OECD group recommended a carve-out in Pillar 2 for patent box regimes that operate under BEPS Action 5 trying their best to keep things the way they are. Meanwhile, the Tax Justice Network shot back that generally carve-outs of any kind are a bad idea, because why start a tax regime with inequities and special loopholes right off the bat, right? For U.S.-based multinationals, keep an eye on whether or not the guilty regime should qualify as an acceptable application of the minimum tax standard under the current plan for Pillar 2, as the United States Council for International Business is currently arguing. If not, the difference in the final tax bill could be substantial. The jury's still out on 
on that one, but we'll keep you posted on this podcast. And the IRS is leaning hard into a new Third Circuit court ruling in its favor against a Susquehanna International Group LLP entity for over $377 million in unpaid taxes stemming from loans guaranteed by its foreign partners. So confident is the IRS, in fact, that it's asking the Supreme Court to skip this one. The IRS's winning argument claimed that a loan to the company guaranteed by its subsidiaries should be regulated as income from those foreign entities, even though there were 37 other parties to the loan. SIH Triple LP's ill-fated defense protested that not only is that too many cooks in the kitchen to call that loan guarantee taxable income, but doing so in effect treats every loan guarantor as the lender, even if it doesn't make sense, as SIH is saying was the case for its two CFCs here. But in the eyes of the Third Circuit Court, a CFC's guarantees of margin loans is taxable income no matter how many parties are involved. The IRS doesn't tell the Supreme Court move along, nothing to see here, very often. So given the way the judicial wins are turning, it may be smart to start thinking of all your company loans the same way, no matter how many parties are involved, just to stay on the safe side. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and before we begin discussing intangibles let's sit down with our transfer pricing manager from our argentina office who will also be joining us on this podcast miss Haley mo Haley. Tell us, just to get to know you a little bit more, what brought you into transfer pricing? I would say I kind of fell into transfer pricing. Um, I moved to Argentina um, about six years ago, and I was looking for a new career path. I studied Spanish business, uh, wanted to find something where I could use my degree in terms of language and, um, I guess, the the content side of it of business mm-hmm. um, and I found an opportunity working with PwC in Argentina um, and and really just started to to take the path of transfer pricing right right that that brought you in uh, you mentioned language so I, I take it that wasn't much of a barrier but what was the biggest adjustment going from the United States to Argentina for you 
Well, I would actually say language was a barrier. Oh. So even though my degree was in Spanish, I was really focused on reading and writing Spanish and didn't have a lot of actual speaking experience. And I think I was um, maybe a little bit shy about my accent at first. Mm. Um, but I would say another adjustment is the um, high rate of inflation in Argentina that we don't have here in the U.S. Interesting. I mean, I know I've heard my grandparents talk a lot about, I remember when an ice cream cone was 50 cents. <laughs> And I mean, I, I can even say I remember when I moved to Argentina when a gallon of milk was however much mm -hmm. and it's changed over six years to being double. So, yeah. Um, and that sounds drastic. I mean, I was at the gas station today and I was like, man, I remember when this was a dollar thirty. And that was that was uh, 20 years ago at this point. So I remember uh, when a stick of gum <laughs> was like less than 25 cents for those really things. <laughs> Not to age myself. I'm oh, yeah. But let's just start with the obvious, just to dive into our subject today. What is an intangible? There are many function. Uh, there are many definitions, and we're going to let Fiona kick this off. Fiona, can you tell us the OECD's definition of an intangible? Yes, according to the OECD, an intangible address is something not a physical asset or a financial asset which is capable of being owned or controlled for use in commercial activities, and whose use or transfer would be compensated had it occurred in a transaction between independent parties in comparable circumstances. Includes but is not limited to IP. Notice that the definition is deliberately broad. And that sounds like an awfully good CPE code word, Fiona, and that code word is deliberately, as in the definition of an intangible asset to the OECD is deliberately broad. And back to you guys. So the IRS basically defines an intangible as an asset that comprises any substantial value independent of the services of any individual. Uh, I think there are lots of different categories of what an intangible is, and they give some examples like patents, inventions, formulas, processes, right? There are these this concept of a franchise, licenses, lots of different types of intangibles out there. And you know, I think the the definition of, of an intangible is deliberately vague because let's be real, an intangible is almost this catch-all bucket of what differentiates something from something else that you can't define what that differentiating factor is, right? Or really what the value is, because I'm looking at our little brief list right here, and I'm seeing musical and artistic compositions, of which you could say the Fiona show is an intangible asset asset of right. cross-border solutions. But there are tangible con components to that, right? For so, sure. You know, like the cost of Matt DeMello's salary or the cost of the microphones and things of that nature. Exactly. Uh, the marketing costs associated with the Fiona branding, right? So those are very tangible components. Now, the intangible quality here would be how what drives people to listen to the show, yeah. right? Like the quality of your voice, Matt, or your presence. That is an intangible asset. Yeah, it's better than having a radio face. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, though. Um, but what happens when tax authorities hear that transfer pricing transactions involve intangibles? Definitely more scrutiny. I think intangible is a kind of a red flag for tax authorities when they hear there's intangibles. They really want to look into how you've evaluated it, how you've priced it, the different transfer pricing um, issues involved in intangibles are wide. Um, I think that there's a lot of a lot of scrutiny around intangibles because they are so difficult to 
um, create a transfer price around intangibles. Yeah, there's a there's there's it's hard to value. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put a finger on it, right? And I think the the concept of intangible is it just creates a lot of complexity, right? And mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've noticed this over the many years you've been in transfer pricing now, Haley. But I think more and more people are classifying um, more characteristics as an intangible versus what people might have thought about it in the past. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll probably go into this in more detail um, as we go through this podcast, but mm-hmm. it, it has changed. The landscape of what is considered an intangible has changed because the business models, um, the opportunities, uh, you know, given our current digital landscape have changed and, and therefore have created a lot more complexity. So we've established that there's a subjective element here that throws everything into question. That's kind of in the name. But what specifically, w- what makes it difficult for transfer pricing executives? Why are they so intimidated by transactions that involve intangibles? Well, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's just because you can't find comparables. Like, by virtue of the definition Mm -hmm. of an intangible, there's no comparable, right? You might be able to compare the value of the Pepsi brand with Mm -hmm. the value of the Coca-Cola brand. But is that really, are they really comparable, right? I think the whole, the aspect of an intangible, right? It's, it's. It's almost a market differentiator. And if you were to ask anybody like, oh, could you really compare the two brands similarly? Maybe. Some people might argue that it can be and others will argue that it it can't. But like, can you compare a Coca-Cola brand to like a Disney brand? Right. Mm. Or to um, uh, the brand, the cross-border brand, for example, all Mm. of a sudden you get into the services area. and, And so there's. Just because a brand is a brand, not all brands are equal, and not all brands bring the same level of value to an organization. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe a good comparison, not comparable, but comparison between assets might be there's a lot more expectation out of a Pepsi commercial in the Super Bowl that's got this extra hype around it than, say, the Coca-Cola commercial, even if they cost the same Mm -hmm. to make. There's something else there we can't put a finger on sure. that, I, that I guess would be marketing expectation. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and, and that's a that's a good opportunity to perhaps for us to define, like, what types of intangibles exist, because I think yeah. that's a really good example of understanding what types of intangibles there are, because they're marketing intangibles, they're brand intangibles, they're soft, quote, intangibles versus mm-hmm. hard intangibles, routine versus non-routine intangibles, like lots of different types of activities and, and, and characteristics could be categorized under this intangible. So let's go back to your example, right? Perfect. The Pepsi commercial versus a Coca-Cola commercial. There's some sort of component there that makes it a little more attractive Mm -hmm. or valuable in your mind, right? But that could also be as a result of being the target market, Matthew, right? Because someone else might disagree with you and say, well, no, I'm much more drawn to the Coca-Cola commercial and I think it has a lot more value because they might be the target audience. Maybe it's a different type of audience. And so there's this element of, of um, you know, sort of a marketing strategy, who your target audience is, that also ultimately impacts the value of that intangible. 
a really in a really concrete way, the Pepsi Super Bowl commercial will determine who's playing the halftime show, and that's got a completely different interest. Whereas the Coca-Cola commercial, you might just be. I, I think their biggest draw around this time of year is that polar bear. The polar bear. There's a legacy, but there's that legacy component I love the polar there. Bear. Everybody loves a polar bear, around but you're going to be watched for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But you're going to watch and be interested for different reasons at different times, which then is hard to put a finger. Yeah, on. I, I feel like they're they're trying to uh, market towards a little more of a nostalgic feel, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But that is probably a really good segue to differentiate what are trade intangibles versus marketing intangibles. Well, I mean, so a trade intangible, a marketing intangible, I think we've been talking a lot about that, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, well, you know, how are you marketing your brand? How are you marketing your company? Uh, a trade intangible is more so related to the actual product. I would actually say, you know, um, the the actual brand name, right? Like mm-hmm. of Coca-Cola versus a Pepsi versus the marketing tangible, which is what well, Coca-Cola is creating something that's a little more nostalgic feeling versus Pepsi is considering something that's a little more fresh feeling, right? A little a little more generational. I feel like their right. their market appeal is a little bit different. Mm. And for those, that differentiation uh, is, are there areas where they overlap? Oh yeah, I mean. It's not black and white, would you say, Haley? <laughs> no, I would definitely say not. And I, I kind of, I guess, when I was learning about intangibles, I learned that marketing intangibles are things that are customer facing, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. And trade intangibles can be almost everything else that's involved in being a commercial asset of a business. Yep, yep. That's that's right. And and then and then if we were to, I mean, you're slicing and dicing these categories of intangibles. And so then you can, you know, sort of slice it horizontally or slice it vertically, and then you can categorize them as soft versus hard intangibles, right? So, you know, what does that mean? Like, what is a hard intangible? You know, something that's more quantifiable, perhaps, I don't know, something that's more, um, less elusive, if that's even a a characteristic here, like location savings, China has been huge and very vocal about the fact that location savings is an intangible, right? The fact that companies move to this jurisdiction in order to reduce their ultimate costs. You know, when people are referring to a soft intangible, it's 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 much more subjective. Uh, like like for example, when we when we talk about a hard intangible, location savings is the idea that okay, well, I can define or I can mm-hmm. actually calculate or potentially quantify the amount of savings I, I received by moving my um, manufacturing operation from the U.S. to China, right. right? It is a hard, quantifiable figure. Now, in the long term, there are other intangible benefits associated with that. Or perhaps there are other softer intangibles that... Uh, I'm not going to be able to quantify, for example, in the U.S., if I am if I already have a manufacturing facility, I have what's considered like a workforce in place, right? I already have hired all these people. And you know what? There are costs associated with hiring people. Then there are already, there are already these elements of having this assembled workforce in place because they already know each other. Right? That's a very soft, intangible characteristic here because they already know each other. They know how to work with one another. They already understand how the machines work, you know, right. simple things like that. Those are all very difficult things 
to actually pinpoint, and those would be characterized as per, uh, per more like softer intangibles or soft intangibles, really. So moving on to routine versus non-routine, what's the difference here? So I would say routine intangibles have kind of neutral returns. And then for non-routine intangibles, they give these companies some kind of competitive advantage. And they also give rise to increased returns. I, I think about non-routine versus routine intangibles as what does a company have to do to, to continue to compete, right? To make sure that that company stays relevant. Because in certain, well, I guess maybe in most sort of industries, you, you, you want to stay relevant, and in order to stay relevant, you have to continue to innovate, right? Innovation may give rise to intangibles naturally, but then some of those are routine intangibles that you just have to continue to do that, you know, adopt the use of the cloud, for example, right? Um, where, which many companies are doing to create certain efficiencies, and that adoption of the cloud, even though that is a, a new sort of innovative um, way to, you know, manage your IT infrastructure, it's still something that is a more of a routine and tangible that companies have to adopt in order to stay relevant and competitive in their market. Right. Things that were previously a non-routine and tangible are now becoming routine. Routine. Yeah. Very much so. Fiona, what are some examples of marketing versus trade intangibles? Marketing intangibles might be trademarks, trade names, customer lists, and all relationships. Meanwhile, trade intangibles could be patents, market-specific characteristics like, for example, low-cost labor, trade secrets, or rights under contracts and government licenses. Trademarks and trade names could also be considered trade intangibles. And that brings me to our next CPE code word, and that code word is cost contribution, as in hard-to-value intangibles are developed under cost contribution arrangements. And Mimi, we always hear about hard-to-value intangibles. What can you tell us about those? So uh, there's there's a there's this category now, right, you know, where people are saying these intangibles are ultimately hard to value. And I mean, in a lot of ways, I kind of think all intangibles are hard to value, to be yeah. honest. Right. But now we specifically have this category of hard to value intangibles. And it makes sense. I think, you know, over the past uh, over the past 10 years or so, maybe maybe even longer, you've seen a lot of court cases where cost um, cost sharing arrangements, cost contribution arrangements have gotten have been under scrutiny because in order to be a participant within a cost sharing arrangement, sometimes you have to value this buy-in payment mm -hmm. so that you know so that two parties can start on an equal foot, so to speak, mm -hmm. right and share the residual returns um, or the non-routine returns associated with the exploitation of that intellectual or intangible property. Um, and and so th this concept of hard-to-value intangibles is because it's not an exact science, because the assumptions that one has to make to be able to value, um, or to put, place a value on this in intangible property, um, it's just it's it's very subjective. I mean, there was there's a lot of controversy around it. You know, when you think about developing software, yes, you know the costs associated with the software development, but if you think about the economic useful life of that software and how that platform, that software platform, could have contributed to 
further innovation and and further um, intangibles that you know it becomes really complicated uh, and you know lots open to lots of subjectivity I think right and when they're looking at these cost contribution agreements a lot of times you have to think about the anticipated benefit for each of the parties and I think that that's difficult when we're looking at projections and and trying to do that analysis. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know, history. If if history has any indication of uh, you know what the value of a product is, then 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 we would be able to predict things much more reliably. Mm-hmm. But to be real, you know, history can only tell us so much, and then we just have to forecast an anticipated benefit from like innovative technology we don't we don't know what the, what that's going to actually do right mm. is it going to is it going to actually work or is it not think about oh i know good example the mini disc player the mini oh, disc yeah yeah right right, right. absolutely like, that was a great innovation i love that and yeah, well absolutely. it started off with the really big discs by the way oh <laughs> yeah i remember the laser disc that's right the laser disc but then the, it became a mini disc which mm-hmm. made it a lot more accessible to people but you know what the economic useful life of that mini disc ended up being like i don't know two years not even like nobody because as soon as that happened that's when mp3s came out and so it was like the useful you know when they probably developed it at that at that time they probably thought oh my gosh this is going to be the next big thing Mm -hmm. it's going to be around for 10 plus years This is going to replace cassette tapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we could spark a whole right. other conversation yep, yep. about those That's formats. Right. But uh, um, any musician, anybody even uh, adjacent to audio technology, can absolutely understand what right. you're saying. And, and but 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 you know, but the truth of the matter is, it wasn't. It didn't do as well as they anticipated. And right. It disappeared. Nobody has a mini displayer now. And now every time there's a new format, we all go, how long is this going to last yep. before before we invest, especially on that side of things? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but intangibles come with their own set of risks, as we all know. What are some risks that could be important to transactions involving intangibles? Well, I think it's just exactly what we were talking about before, right? Like the anticipated usefulness of that how much are you going how much are you going to invest in the 8 track before the cassette tape rolls oh, around yeah. you know? or the Betamax before the VHS <laughs> right, come, VHS exactly. comes into play right, exactly. the VHS before the DVD and so on laser discs <laughs> Blu-ray, before CDs that's yeah. right yeah, yeah right the developmental risk of developing mm-hmm. these things is it going to be successful that's there's a right. lot of risk involved when you're um, doing these kinds of R&D developments yep and 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 the liability side so I I just got a Samsung Galaxy S10 phone, ah. um, but I do remember, and we didn't buy them before because I don't know if you know. Going back, like, and this goes to the liability risk. That phone used to blow up in people's <laughs> hands. It would get, it would overheat, yeah, right. and it would catch on fire. And really great example. We haven't really seen that crazy of development in cell phones, mm-hmm. say, between 2005 to 2010 when it was outrageous. They, they went from nothing flip phones to, you know, what we see today. Well, you got to go back to the Saved by the Bell, oh, Zach Morris-like right. car phone. But you really haven't seen cha- that crazy <laughs> yeah. of changes yeah. in smartphones in the last 10 years. So that, I think that gives you, you know, technology like history is not a straight line. That's right. That's exactly right. right? And I think the obvious thing so. for risks of developing yes. something that because as soon as you put something to market unless it's patentable right everyone's going to recreate it right there is this concept of like 
not wanting to be the first to market, right? <laughs> because of that. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, Facebook has survived and has thrived and Facebook is huge. But let's right. go back to where the where those sort of social media platforms started because I don't know if you guys were familiar there was Friendster. Oh yeah. And honestly, those platforms came to market before Facebook did. Yep. That's and yet right. Facebook was the one that thrived. Right. And yeah. you could almost see the future of Facebook through MySpace because almost uh, minus uh, certain aspects. But the <laughs> yeah. audience wise, the same thing happened. Exactly. It was kids at first. And then when it, it exploded, then that original audience got driven away. And that's slowly happening with Facebook. But another episode. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's take that example right there. Uh, who had the infringement risk? Friendster, MySpace? Well, is the person is the company that was first to market. So uh, tell us a little bit about exploitation risk. I, I think ultimately it goes back to our mini disc example, right? And, and so when they came out, when 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 the mini disc came out, I'm sure they were thinking newest next big thing is going to last for five, ten years or something, and and really lasted for like two. And yeah. and ultimately they weren't able to exploit the intangible or and get any benefits associated with it. And so they probably didn't even recoup the investment costs associated with the development of such an innovative product. And according to OECD guidelines, payment for the use of an intangible should be made to the party having the legal rights to such an intangible. How is legal ownership defined? Legal ownership doesn't really imply that the legal owner is entitled to any income generated by the business after compensating the other members of the group. So I think that for contributions in the form of functions performed, assets, risks, um, the legal owner doesn't have to be the one that carries all of these different functions, the development, the enhancement, the maintenance, these dempy functions. Um, so I think that the legal owner um, is a little bit, I wouldn't say hard to define, but I would say that that's the person who um, has contributed the most to these different functions. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. The legal owner of an intangible property is probably, I think, easier to define than the economic owner of the intangible only because there's paperwork associated with the ownership, right? And so the legal owner is the one that perhaps paid for everything or on, on a, from a paper perspective, from a contractual perspective, they're bearing the contractual risk. On paper, it says that they own it. They might have been the one to actually um, patent it in certain jurisdictions, right? So those are the legal owners of IP. And there's been a lot of controversy and or debate 
about what constitutes legal ownership versus economic ownership and then where the where the residual profits or where any of the non-routine intangible profits associated with you know um, the intangible should be remunerated is that just where I would ask for the example? I just want to make sure it was a good example of that because I, I was trying to make sure I paid yeah, attention yeah, to what you said. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. So can you give us a good example of, of that sort of controversy? So, okay. So as an example, like the DHA, it go, this goes back way back, like to the DHL case. I mean, everyone's familiar with DHL as, as sort of this uh, uh, courier, right? And they granted a royalty-free license to its international affiliate for the use of the trademark. Um, but ultimately, DHL was losing money, and then the licensee was actually making money. So the question mark was, well, all right, so the licensee who's actually making the money, shouldn't they pay a royalty for the use of that trademark? back and the IRS essentially um, the IRS essentially was arguing about the value of that trademark like I think DHLI which is the licensee once again mm -hmm. they wanted to sell the trademark for about 20 million dollars so that the, the company losing money wouldn't lose money anymore right and right they were they were the ones being able to exploit that IP I mean they were the ones seeing any value from the IP because let's face it you know, an intangible isn't necessarily defined, and and does an intangible really have value if you're not making money as a corporation, right? right so right, that's right. that's part of the argument here. And then, but the IRS basically, instead of you know valuing it while DHL valued it at about twenty million, the IRS basically said, no, we think it's valued at three hundred million. I think the idea here is that, like I said, intangibles. To try to value that, it requires so many different assumptions that it you it's it's subject to lots of scrutiny it's it's not an exact science and uh you're going to get five different answers if you ask five different people what the value of that trademark is right like, which would make me think that's that's got to be extraordinary to argue in court because you've got to have a, a judge accept those I, I assume it would just probably come down to to a judge but uh have them accept those assumptions and uh it, the success of your case might be on how many assumptions you have the crazier the softer the intangible the more assumptions you might have to make or at least argue in your case yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you know when going back to the dhl case the i I think the real crux of this is the fact that, you know, DHL, the U.S. company, was the legal owner to the IP. I mean, they mm -hmm. they had this con contract in place for the licensing company to exploit the the trademark with no royalty, right? Um, and then, but I think that licensee was able to exploit that brand and actually contributed to the value of their brand by promoting it, right? They're the ones that incurred, I think they incurred over $300 million of marketing costs to make sure that people understood that this brand had some value. So they're the ones that actually built the market for the brand. So then they became the economic owners right. of the brand. Now, in this situation, it's not like the U.S. company compensated the licensee for... Um, for those, for the, all the costs that they incurred in, in marketing and marketing that brand, 
it was in the licensee's best interest to market the brand, right? Because they, they, had, they had it. Ex- exactly. And it's going to help to contribute to their bottom line. And so that's what they did. So so that's sort of why this this argument of legal versus economic ownership becomes so important. What, what was the final damage here? I know this case is, is uh, very famous probably among tax executives, but uh, I guess let's say you're the Billie Eilish who hasn't heard of Van Halen here. Um, <laughs> so it, it turned out because the economic owner is the one that incurred all the costs and developed the market, they didn't owe a royalty back. Even though on paper it said that the other entity was the owner, right? Mm-hmm. But the economic owner is the one that ultimately um, incurred the costs, uh, built the market for the IP, and therefore should recuperate the the profit from you know the IP exploitation. In speaking of classic court cases, the Glaxo case is also interesting and one of the more famous cases in transfer pricing. Can you tell us about that and its significance in terms of intangibles? So I think that this case was really what provided perspective on how the IRS sees intangibles. Um, It involved a settlement for over $3 billion. Um, So the background on this was that the U.S. company of Glaxo was expected to be remunerated for its marketing and distribution of a product that was developed in the U.K. Um, And the product developed by the U.K. labs um, was the highest selling drug in the worldwide healthcare market. So the IRS was arguing that Glaxo in the U.S. was not entitled to deduct the royalties it paid for the trademark and the other marketing intangibles because for tax purposes, it was the owner of these intangibles. Well, what's interesting here is that there's also, because it's pharmaceutical, there's a question between what actually is the valuable component of the drug, right? Right. Was it the marketing or was it the active ingredient? So, yeah, so so that's that's the big issue here. And so there was a split of like who contributed what to this this drug because um, the UK entity actually owned the IP associated with the active ingredient, if you will, the formulation of the actual drug. Mm-hmm. And then but the IRS argued that, well, the U.S. is the one that marketed this drug here in the U.S. And you know what? The value of the drug and, and the success of it is because of the marketing. It has nothing to do with the underlying active ingredient. Mm. So what do you do in that case, right? It's like two different intangibles contributing to the value of the drug. One side of the coin is saying, oh, well, all of that value is associated with marketing. And the other side is saying, no, all of the value is associated with the active ingredient. Mm. Who's right? That being said, for the difference between a trade versus a marketing intangible, uh, I mean, does even, you know, a formula for a pharmaceutical, that, that seems rather concrete. That still counts as an intangible? Yeah, because it's it's a formulation. I mean, that's part of what differentiates, like, this is why pharmaceuticals right. are able to patent drugs, because of the right. underlying formulation. So it's 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 a big part of what motivates pharmaceutical companies to continue to do R&D in the space, because with that, they're able to patent the formula and then have a, a basically a monopoly on that particular drug for X right. number of years. Unless someone comes up with a formula that's maybe better, more effective. I don't know. Right. And what are common business models and how do they play a role with intangibles? So I would say probably the most common business model, and especially the one that we document the most, is this license model of a IP owner licensing their intangibles to one of their foreign affiliates. 
um, and then the foreign affiliate pays a royalty back. So that's kind of what we see most often. We also take a look at different franchising and service models um, that involve intangibles, which I think are less common and are becoming harder to um, document and identify from an arm's length perspective because the most common, the easiest ones are these um, intellectual property, trademark licensing, and especially because there's much more comparables out there, but it's harder to evaluate the different service models because there's not as many comparables out there. Um, and another one is the entrepreneur structure. I might argue against the difficulty of franchise models. And the, I mean, the reason why is because, so franchise models, just generally speaking, what's fascinating about a franchise model, and take McDonald's, for example, right? There are McDonald's that are owned by independent owners that become franchisees of the major McDonald's corporation. They're independent mm-hmm. franchisees. A difference between a license and a franchise and a ser- franchise service model is that essentially those McDonald's franchises, they also purchase goods from the McDonald's corporation. Like they have to purchase the That's french right. fries directly through them, right? And they have to purchase the burger patties through them. And so there's a lot of different costs that go back and forth. Um, and so what, there are all these other observations available under franchise model agreements between unrelated parties that can be potentially utilized or examined. I think the challenge or the difficulty is essentially controlling for all those different costs, right? And being able to isolate them um, to understand whether or not a company-controlled franchise and an independent third-party franchise is operating similarly. Because Mm -hmm. I think that when you see those two sort of arrangements, they tend to have different elements that make it difficult to compare, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's 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 probably been your experience, Haley, and that's why you see some challenges with respect to comparability of franchises. Now, an entrepreneurial structure, I mean, listen, when you talk about uh, intangibles in the context of an entrepreneurial structure, well, the whole idea is that everyone's doing their own thing. They operate in a silo. They don't share anything. Mm-hmm. They all sort of you know, create their own uh, market and and to the extent that they are developing their own intangibles and they're only exploiting their own, right? Right. You see this a lot for accounting firms and law firms. And what what I mean by that is because, you know, they all work under the same umbrella, right? Yeah. But they're all, a, it's a partnership model. So they're all sort of building up their brand. And yet at the same time, some firms have a brand name associated with them. I won't name them, but they're like the big four accounting firm and, you know, different law firms. They have a brand name associated with that sort of entrepreneurial business model. But it's it 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 it's still sort of up in the air, depends on the business. Everything is so facts and circumstance based that it's hard to definitively say one way or the other whether or not that um that logo or that brand or that trademark has any uh, value that should be paid back to, quote, the legal owner, right? Mm. Because in, in essence, all of those businesses are developing their own local markets using and exploiting that particular brand. So that actually, you know, that's that's sort of where an entrepreneurial model um has its own challenges. Like they, they're not really worried about sharing anything, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing their own thing, and yet they could be working under the same umbrella, 
and creating their own value locally. And then it just becomes this question of, okay, well, does a legal, is a legal owner of any sort of intangible or brand entitled to a piece of that? Indeed. Uh, just in your McDonald's example, I couldn't help but be reminded of the movie Founder, which actually does a really great job of explaining uh, that the very long distance that McDonald's always maintained with their franchisees. And that was very inherent to their business model and, and Ray Kroc's early success. So if you've ever seen that movie, really, really great flick, and it gets all of that across in a very, very simple way. When working with intangibles, how do you choose the right transfer pricing method? What should you consider? First, you really have to look at the functions, assets, and risks of each party involved in the sharing of these intangibles. Um, then also looking at the business reasons for engaging in this type of transaction. I mean, does the licensor have a lot of options versus where a licensee really only has sometimes an option of licensing this type of intangible from its related party? Um, other things to look at are the different competitive advantages um, of using this intangible, um, including especially the relative profitability of products and services or potential products without services related to the intangibles. We also have to look at the expected future economic benefits from the transaction like we talked about before. Uh, and other comparability factors such as the features of the local market, location savings like we talked about, um, an assembled workforce, um, and other synergies of the group. You know, so when you talk about synergies, it brings up a really interesting point in my mind because in the regulations, when it comes to the services regulations, by the way, it's not intangibles regulations, but specifically in the services regulations, um, there's this concept of a benefit and integral test, and this has evolved. But one of the questions historically was whether or not this intercompany service was derived as a result of being part of a larger organization or, or basically as a result of a synergy by being part of this M&E. And in fact, per the services regulations, if the benefit was conferred as a result of the synergy, there was no payment required. It wasn't deemed a service that was um, com compensable, right? So if we're going to talk about that in the context of a service that it's not compensable, you know, we should probably think about, okay, well then how come we're hearing that group synergies are now potentially an intangible? And traditionally, the cup or cut method uh, is applied when dealing with intangibles. Why is that? I would say because typically that's the first method, the best method that's used to analyze different intangibles due to all of the different contractual items that there are when it comes to intangibles regarding exclusivity, duration, the scope of the uh, geography of where these intangibles can be used. I, I also think it, it a cup method is better because you know, the prop, the problem with looking at a profitability based analysis for intangibles is that every intangible basically gives rise to different levels of profitability, right? It could have an impact to the organization that's going to make them, you know, 5% more profitable versus like, you know, 10%. And so there's a lot more volatility associated with profitability. How, how much are they able to exploit it? Now, when you look at it from a cup method perspective, 
because you're taking it as a percentage of the sales and you're tying it and you're linking it up and saying like, listen, the, the, the value of this IAP or the, in, in your exploitation of this intangible property that I'm licensing to you, I, I know that I think it's valued at X percent of your sales and it's going to help help your top dollar, right? Your top line as opposed to your bottom line. And a profit-based analysis looks at your bottom line. And sometimes that level of volatility on your profitability basis is, is harder to um, sort of define and quanti- quantify. It's, it's a little more indirect, right? The transactional profit split method is also commonly used for intangibles. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the transactional profit split, um, just a, a profit-based profit split. Uh, profit splits generally are sort of uh, applied for intangibles, and you know, it's it's probably because I mean. When you think about it at the end of the day, and a profit split is typically applied when there is a co-development of intangible property, okay? Mm-hmm. That's, it's usually, that's, that's the verbiage in the regulatory environment. And so, and this has always sort of been my perspective on it, and this, I'm not trying to overcomplicate transfer pricing. It doesn't have to be rocket science. Oh. And yet, at the same time, <laughs> the nature of business models out there, right? Right. If we really break it down and we really want to be sort of theoretical about this, it's there's no business out there that doesn't have some sort of intangible, right? Right. No business out there that's not trying to get some sort of competitive advantage. Whether or not it's their their approach to the market, whether or not they're putting money in marketing their brand, or if it's in, you know, the quality of the people that they're hiring uh, or sort of the workforce culture, something, right? Something, there are always intangible properties to every business model out there. And in fact, if we were to overcomplicate it, <laughs> then everything would be analyzed using a profit split approach. Right. Now, that is why a profit split approach is typically applied in many intangible situations. I would not recommend that, though. So this is, you know, it's just a theoretical framework that I, I find fascinating. <laughs> well, well, in that case, are there methods that are generally not recommended for intangible transactions? Definitely. The transactional net margin method, or in the U.S. we use the comparable profits method, those are generally not recommended. Uh, We typically don't use a resale price method. Those are used mostly for manufacturing transactions, distribution transactions, Um, and partly because they assume that all residual profit is allocated to the owner of the intangible. Um, Methods that encourage determining the value of the intangible based on the cost of the intangible development is generally discouraged because there's usually no correlation. Yeah, going back to our examples before, right? I'm sure it cost the company millions of dollars to develop a mini disc, and it probably cost a company the same amount or maybe less to develop MP3. And yet, the value of one is significantly higher than the other. Right, right, Mm -hmm. right. Right? So, I mean, I agree. I agree. Cost does not correlate to intangible uh, value, um, but it, it's one of the mechanisms we have. So, to be fair, like sometimes you have to rely on it, and sometimes you have to rely on a profit-based analysis to look at that residual profit as as at least a basis to determine, you know, what the value of the intangible is. And in, in a lot of ways, when we do an intangible analysis, we end up looking at multiple approaches, 
Why? Because right. if you have multiple approaches, because they're all a little bit subjective, if you have multiple approaches and then somehow they converge or you find where that, that, that point of convergence, then you can feel a little bit more comfortable that you've gotten to a reasonable answer. Indeed. And for the sake of just nailing down how we go about uh, looking for comparables, what are we looking for then? What are, what are our primary focuses? Usually we're looking first and foremost at the unique features of the intangible, and especially when we're using the cut method. Um, using the cut method, you really have to look at the different contractual factors, make sure that these products or processes are used in a similar market or industry. Um, then we also look at the actual and potential profitability of potential comparables in comparison to the transferred intangible. What might be a good example of those unique features? Uh, so, for example, like, do you watch Silicon Valley? Because that might be a good way to frame oh, my it. My brother has recommended okay. that I All watch right. Silicon Valley, but I guess you could you could yeah, throw this so, out there. I so feel like a it's unique, yeah, a, a unique feature is you know in that in that show you see that they have um, developed a way to uh, to compress file sizes, right? And into like or data sizes, it could be videos or pictures or whatever. Anyways, just file sizes for storage purposes, and. Um, that is a unique intangible because not everybody was able to develop that code to be able to do something like that, right? right. Or a unique intangible is the Coca-Cola formulation. I mean, that's different than the Pepsi formulation. Right. Or I, I, I take it that would also be applicable to pharma that's and, right. and so on. All of, like patented um, active ingredients. Absolutely. Those are all unique intangibles. Um, Matthew DeMello's... Uh, a podcast voice that is a unique intangible it would take them a very long time to find a bot that can recreate that voice i'd like to think anyway so let's just get down to you know the brass taxes of the documentation that hand you're showing what do you show in your analysis well i think like other transactions as well first you really have to show the functional analysis which provides a clear understanding of the business you have to show how the transferred intangibles interact with the other functions, assets, and risk that make up the business. Um, and essentially, you have to identify all the factors to the value creation of that intangible, uh, making sure that you show the method is appropriate and that the relevant factors contributing to the creation of the value are taken into account. What advice would you give in that case to M&Es that are dealing with a lot of intangible transactions, especially if they have those hard-to-value intangibles, as they, they're called? So my advice is, is follow the profit. Um, I actually think that if you're looking at intangibles and you're looking at hard-to-value intangibles, you should look at the overall system profit of the organization across each component of the value chain or the supply chain. And if you look at that, it should be pretty telling in terms of, you know, where you're leaving the residual profit and and perhaps then, you know, help you identify areas to dig into a little bit further. Because if your distributor, for example, ends up making more profit, you shouldn't necessarily um, penalize them by saying, well, no, you should only be making a routine return. There's an opportunity there to look at that a little bit more 
uh, deeply to find out, okay, well, what is the distributor doing? Like, what are they doing to differentiate themselves? How are they able to achieve that level of a profit margin? Have they been able to cut certain costs? Does that give rise to an intangible? <laughs> so right. there, there are lots of opportunities there to look at it in, in more depth. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. In that case... Thank you to both Mimi and Haley for joining us today. We've had a very informative discussion, but before you go, Mimi, uh, you know the drill. We're putting you in the hot seat for what we want to know, one of my favorite parts of the show. Fun other times. <laughs> that's other than the introduction, the news, and the get-to-know-you questions in the media transfer pricing interview and the conclusion. But I will uh, shoot off a rapid-fire round of questions, and you give us your off-the-cuff answers. Are you ready? I am ready. That was question one, and here is question two. <laughs> if I wasn't an economist in transfer pricing, I would hope, uh, I hope I would be, enter your dream job. A chef. Ah, yes. any, any specific kind of cuisine? Fine dining French cuisine. Ooh. Now, okay, okay, but I have to caveat this. I literally can't cook French <laughs> fine dining cuisine, but I would love to learn. I would have loved to go to like the French Culinary Institute and, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. I, there was a time when I really enjoyed cooking so much and I would have loved to be, uh, you know, a chef or open a restaurant and, and you know, enhance those people's experience, right? So. Interesting. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll need to have one of those nights uh, in our extracurricular nights. Yeah. Doing French dining. We'll have to, we'll have to go <laughs> down that route. I just get a lot of butter and cream. <laughs> <laughs> How do you handle your hit the fan moments? Your bleep hit the fan moments. You know... I I have to take a deep breath first and foremost. I think I think sometimes when when you're when you're in a situation where you have to deal with um, this immense pressure, stress, whatever is happening, take a deep breath. I close my eyes and I just I just pause and then I say, okay, hit me with it. Let's let's figure this out, right? Because. I want to make sure we're coming to reasonable conclusions and solutions and not being overly reactionary because I think sometimes, you know, people tend to just react too quickly and it's like, you just need to take a moment to think. Right. At least put away all those emotions for a moment right, and, and for, make a clear head. As decision. much as you can. Yeah, as much as you can. Maybe I just need to take a walk too. you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big proponent of walking. Mm -hmm. Hire fast, fire fast. Agree or disagree. I disagree with that. I actually do think taking the time to get to know 
the people before you hire them or at least trying to get a little bit into their mindset is important. And I also think you need to give people an opportunity to demonstrate their capabilities, right? I'm sure you've seen this meme before. I don't know if it's a meme or if it's a blog or I don't know. But it's there was it's like you you shouldn't expect a fish to be able to climb a tree. I think that's based on an old Einstein quote yes, about okay. the public education system. Right, exactly. And so, yeah. you know, and so, and so in some ways, I think, is, you know, I'm always looking and, and people will tell it, people will say this all the time. I'm extremely optimistic, right? I'm a very glass half full type of person. And so I'm always, everyone starts with me at 100%. And so and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. <laughs> That's right. So I always feel like I give people the benefit of the doubt, and I want to find out exactly how we can play to their strengths. Name a famous person, anyone you'd like to meet in person. Huh. That's a good one. You know, a famous person. I would like to meet Barack Obama. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, nice. I think. Yeah, maybe Oprah too. I, I really. Oprah would be fun. That's right. Or Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> or Michelle Obama. Yeah. All three yeah. at once on the same show. Yes. Right. <laughs> People define success in different ways. What's your definition? Well, I think success in a lot of ways is a mindset, right? So, um, I think you know if I were to, if I were to think about what what makes me feel successful it's it's having this mindset of like accomplishment of of you know feeling like i've completed a task or something that i meant to do during that day even simple things sometimes makes me feel successful like oh i didn't forget to book my daughter's doctor's appointment right and like <laughs> that to me is success and it's all about the little wins sometimes especially if you are forgetful i like to give myself a little pat on the back whenever i remember to do something do you harry potter i just recently read my daughter was reading the books and they had yeah. the remember all ball that, that, that's right yeah that spoke to me i yes <laughs> I need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a very late bloomer to Harry Potter. Uh, I didn't get into it until as an adult. And that that whole memory ball thing, like, oh, God, I need those. Yes. Anyway, thank you so much, Mimi and Haley. That's all the time we have for today. An intangible podcast about intangibles. But don't let that corny joke be the last you hear from us about transfer pricing. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify and we'll fill you in on key issues, topics, even technical know-how about transfer pricing every week and earn CPE credits just for listening. I mean, how cool is that? Also, check out our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where we'll catch you up on groundbreaking headlines every week. This podcast was hosted, edited, and engineered by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our scripts. What's next in transfer pricing? Nobody knows, but at least you know where to find out. 